Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. I just start off in um, the book of John, chapter 12, and this is John's account of the triumphal entry, and I like it. John chapter 12, we'll just say verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, he sat on it, as it is written, verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. Those people were the ones who were at the feast. The feast was a feast held at Lazarus' house by his sisters. And, um, and they were celebrating the, the miracle that had taken place when Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's why they all were there. They saw Jesus, and then they come out the next day uh, to... to lay down the palm branches. For this reason, also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. I love this picture, and it's, it's one of the most betraying moments of the followers of Jesus. Betraying in that it, not that they're betraying him yet, but their heart is betrayed. What they care about is betrayed. They're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel. People hadn't talked about a king of Israel in a really long time. Because at this point, we know that Israel, that Jerusalem, that it's all under Roman rule. And... Uh, it had really been centuries since there had been a proper king of Israel. And so for these uh, folks to come out and be talking like this, you know, this was pretty extravagant. It would be like, you know, I know we have a president, but we don't have a king. People haven't talked about a king or a queen since, you know, the Revolutionary War in America. It would be like somebody talking about a king now. And uh, a little bit of a different... Um, little bit of a different theme if we take our eyes and our feet out of the context from 2,000 years later and we start to understand what was going on in town. But the people, in a sense, were crying out, king. They wanted a king. Now, this was not the first time the people of God wanted a king. And as I was thinking through this morning and, and praying about where the Lord wanted to go, the Lord reminded me as I read that line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The Lord reminded me of the first time that his people wanted a king. The first time they cried out, give us a king. 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7 
is a story, really, it's a, it's a story about the end of Samuel, in a sense. Um, not his death, but the end of an era. We know that the first king of Israel was Saul, and then um, the Lord, the Spirit, departs from Saul because Saul made some epic mistakes and moves on to David, King David. And it would be David's throne that Jesus comes to, to rule and reign from. And, uh, and it would be all the kings between David and Jesus that, you know, the highs and lows of Israel. But I want to take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 for just a minute. And we're going to begin reading in uh, verse 15. It says this, Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now, this is how Israel was led at this time. This is how Israel uh, was... um, governed in a sense, although governance wasn't even the word that was used because there was a fear of the Lord. There was a healthy fear of the Lord, and that fear um, inspired people to uh, conduct themselves in a way that was pleasing to God. And when they didn't, there was often death to pay for it. And so Samuel being the leader, it says he judged Israel all the days of his life, But the word here um, that we translate, some of your Bibles will say he led Israel, he judged Israel, he did what? That word actually has three meanings that we translate there out of the Hebrew. And they mean an army commander, a judge, and a religious leader. And I want to talk about these three things for just a minute because Samuel was uh, effectively accomplishing this work, but he was a prophet and so only did so on behalf of the Lord. The army commander. You see, this, th- these different leadership roles, they were to determine things. Determine. Do we go to war? To determine. If you're writing things down, write this. A leader determines my defense. At this time, it was really important to know whether or not we were supposed to go to war. Because it meant all of these men leaving their families. There wasn't, a, you know, the military back then was not like it was now. Young, young men, young adolescent men, uh, everyone was drafted. At this time, it was Mosaic law that, uh, that everyone of, of age and ability was in the army. And making a mistake on whether or not we go to war or not, this was paramount to Israel's destiny, their future, their promises, their, their livelihood. Uh, because, in a sense, if they got this wrong, an enemy nation could wipe them out. So a leader at this time, Samuel's role as a prophet, was to determine their defense. As a judge, it was to determine their disputes. If you're writing things down, a leader determines my disputes. Now, this was also really significant 
This, this was perhaps a more common and necessary job than even the determining the defenses. Because, you know, there were seasons of the year when kings would start to murmur and, you know, hate letters would be sent and Cold War, like, you know, harassment and this and that and rumors of war and stuff like that. But um, year round, how many of y'all know that, that arguing never goes out of style? There are disputes among the people of God. Is that, can we just say that? We can just go there. There are some disputes. There are some places where we're kind of like, well, you say it's this, but I say it's this. And the Mosaic law doesn't perfectly, you know, lay it out for us. So we're going to need a judge. We're going to need someone to determine our disputes. And Samuel, as a prophet of the Lord, would determine disputes on God's behalf. And the last thing was a leader at this time was a religious leader and would determine devotion would determine devotion. Now this was even more common than, this was even more common than determining disputes because devotion was like living and breathing and moving for the people of God. The sacrificial system, these fires were burning around the clock. The priesthood had to be held accountable and kept in check. And the prophet of the Lord would have had his hands full just doing this job. Determining devotion. What does worship look like? How is it that we are to abide by these laws? How is it that the priesthood is supposed to um, be operating in this current season? While the Mosaic laws offered all the infrastructure that was necessary, Samuel would still hear from the Lord on what was required in terms of uh, an everyday sacrifice. In terms of what was required of the people. If a mistake had been made, if sins had been committed, if there was sin in the camp, then it would be Samuel that God would say, okay, here's what we're going to have to do. Sackcloth and ashes. Let's call a solemn assembly. Let's go to the Lord. Let's cry out. Let's repent. Samuel only did these things on the Lord's behalf. But if you keep reading in chapter 8, so we just finished chapter 7, if you keep reading, it says this, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. It's going to feel like we're jumping around a little bit here, but I just, I, I feel like this is going to be one of those messages where, you know, everybody's going to have to ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to take home from this? But on a practical sense, I want to talk about what, what is happening in these verses, okay? You see, Samuel was appointed by God. If you remember the story of Samuel, my wife preached on Hannah and bearing Samuel a number of years ago, and she absolutely slayed it. It's like the best message I've ever heard in my life. And it's so good. But if you remember, there was a prophet before Samuel. Dude's name was Eli. And if you remember, Eli had a couple of sons. And Eli's sons took bribes, perverted justice, and uh, really corrupted the, the prophetic interaction uh, with the sacrificial system and just leading as a whole. Well, Samuel was dedicated to the Lord at a young age and appointed by God himself. If you remember in Samuel's, it's just a few chapters earlier than this, but, but uh, 
Sam was a little bitty boy and he heard his name called in the middle of the night. And he thought it was Eli. So he'd get up and he'd go run in and say, what is it? What is it? And Eli'd say, it's nothing. And then it happened again. It happened again. And finally, Eli said, that's the Lord talking to you, kids. Stop waking me up. And so he goes back and as he responds to the Lord, the Lord appoints him in a conversation. He doesn't use the word appointing, I don't think, at least in my translation. But uh, the idea is that there's a call on Samuel's life. Samuel was appointed by God, but his sons were appointed by him. Just want to let that sink in for a second. Saints, we've got to make sure that we're raising our kids with intercession and not intervention. We live in this culture where we think intervention is the answer. Well, let's get him to sit down in a room. Let's get everybody that loves him around him because everybody that loves him has been able to do something good so far, right? Well, if we all get together, if you all get together, then it's just a lot of sad, desperate, hopeless people in the room with a guy, you know what I'm saying? Intervention. We learned it from a TV show somewhere and it just doesn't work. Intervention only works when it's divine intervention and then it's God intervening. But the definition of intercession is to plead on one's behalf. The definition of intervention is to come between two things. My fear is that the Lord's called us to intercession, to intercede, and we've responded by intervening instead. That's what happened. You see, there would have been a call on Samuel's sons. There would have been, you know, the Lord would have had something for them. And uh, I'm not saying he did everything else right to raise them, but I am saying that he got in between God and his boys. And from that place, appointed them himself. It's kind of like one of those things like you look at your kids and you're like, you're never going to make it in the world. We'll find a place for you in the family business. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, don't worry, honey. Mom's going to take care of you. I know it's almost your 35th birthday. Sometimes we think we're interceding, but we're really intervening between our children and the Lord. Probably more of that to come. I believe the Lord is calling us to a, um, a season of really holding the magnifying glass over our families. Um, some of you are like getting really uncomfortable. You're like, oh, really? My family is like my disqualifier. Well, don't go there. Because we know the, the qualifier. You know what I'm saying? But we also know the healer of our families. And I believe that if our intervention can come back to a place of intercession, we're seeing it happen on Tuesday nights. It's like everywhere that we've tried to do it in our strength, which is intervention, the Lord's saying, come back. Come back to intercession. Let me do it in my strength. So I believe there's more to come. There may be Bible studies, there may be books written and, you know, sermons preached and altar calls given and small groups held. But I do believe, and I just want to prepare you now, that I believe with my whole heart that the Lord is calling for a strengthening of our families. So just get ready. 
I want to talk about spiritual generations for just a second here because this, this is just too uncanny. That Samuel, who is God's replacement for Eli's sons, because Eli's sons were wicked and could not follow in his footsteps as a, as a prophet. And so Samuel is his replacement raised up and what happens, but history repeats itself in the form of his own two sons. Corrupt. Perverted. Perverting justice. Now, Tyler Dixon's here with his two sons this morning. I just feel like I want to... I'm just kidding. <laughs> Poor Judy and Caleb. I love you guys. You're not any of these things. But I was just thinking, we've got two sons and mine aren't here, so you were an easy target. I love you. Spiritual generations, let's talk about this for a second because I think it has, bears some serious significance to where the church is today, uh, especially the Church of America. The first generation, if we start with Samuel, which we could really start with Eli, but let's start with Samuel. He loves God and does the job part. He loves God and does the job part, but neglects to reproduce it. The next generation, his boys raise up. They love the job and just do the God part and end up not just neglecting to reproduce, but now they neglect people in general. And finally, we get to the next couple of verses. We're going to go back and talk about this in a second. But in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint, that's like a nice way of saying, you know, what's going on. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. Interesting, isn't it? What had driven Israel to go to Samuel and say, we don't want your sons, we want a king, is because of the way the generations of spiritual leadership had taken place. You had a man who loved God, but just did the job part. His sons loved the job, but they're just doing the God part. They're just going through the motions. They show up at the altar. They show up. They, they stand in the place and sit in the seat of what was supposed to be leading Israel, a prophetic voice. But instead of caring anything about the heart of God, they care about themselves. And saints, I believe that this has been sort of the, the pitfall of the American church by and large. Generations ago, we had spiritual leaders who loved God. And whatever that meant, whatever job that meant, if it meant standing in a pulpit, then they would stand in a pulpit. If it meant getting on a ship, selling everything they owned and sailing to a, a, a foreign country, then they would go. If it meant uh, teaching Sunday school, if it meant, you know, whatever, they loved God, so they just did the job, whatever it was. But what happens is when we begin to intervene instead of intercede, 
we end up passing on the generational curse of what came before us. And for Samuel, he took himself out of the spirit and into the flesh when he began to intervene on behalf of his kids. He was looking too much at the, genera at the generation ahead of him than he was the father. And, it, and what happened then is that he, when, when stepping out of this track of what does the father want? What does the father want? What does the father want? What is the father saying? What is the father saying? He takes himself out of that track and immediately, like clockwork, reproduces Eli's situation. And saints, my heart is that as churches rise and fall, as churches are born and grow up and grow old and die, churches live out generations just like people do. And they go through stages. And uh, my heart is for what happens next. When we, when we get to a place, and some of you in here, you can relate to this. You've gotten to a place where there was spiritual leadership in your life somewhere, and they loved the job and all the goods that came with it, but they only just did the God part. And so you were neglected in the process. Your call, your heart, your sacrifice your obedience, your surrender. It was neglected in the process. But the scariest thing that happens is what comes next. The people gather together and they say, we want a king. We no longer want a prophetic voice as a leader because now the prophetic voice is no longer speaking you're no longer determining our defenses our disputes and our devotion based on the father's heart we want a king we want a king now samuel goes on to tell them what an epic mistake this would be but unfortunately he had already earned a feudal voice in the eyes and ears of the people he was leading he says guys you don't want a king you don't want a king a king is going to take your sons and use them for, he's going to use them for his own private uh, charioteers and bodyguard and, and soldiers. He's going to take your fields and he's going to plant his own crops in them. He's going to take your money. He's going to take all the most beautiful women in the land. He, this is not what you want. I'm telling you right now, this is not what you want. And they say, we want a king. This is the trajectory of spiritual generations when we're not led well. And God says in verse 22, I believe with sadness and disappointment, I believe a thunder came from the sky and the Lord said to Samuel in one epic statement that would change the course and trajectory of this nation and how it was to be set apart. He says in verse 22, give them a king. Give them a king. Why was this such a big deal? All the nations around them were ruled by kings and that's what these people were taking note of. See, when we have a system and it works, 
Well, we don't need to fix it. But the truth is, Israel gets a bad rap for asking for a king, but their system was broken. They weren't led well. They weren't led by a leadership that was reproducing God's heart. They weren't led by a leadership that, that cared anymore about justice, about covering. So God says, give them a king. Israel was never meant to be led by a king. In truth, the people of God were never meant to be led by a king. We were never meant to be led even, well, getting ahead of it. All right, let's need some explanation. They were never meant to be led by a king. You see, prophetic leadership, prophetic leadership, Eli, Samuel, the different ways that God was speaking to his people up until this point, uh, the interesting thing about this stuff, even through the book of Judges, um, when, when there was a judge in the land who would determine defense, dispute, and most of them were pretty lousy at the devotion part, but it was still going on. There was still a priesthood. What's interesting is that God only needs a mouthpiece. And he doesn't even really need that, but that's what he chose to use. Prophetic leadership, only a mouthpiece was needed. Why? Why a mouthpiece? Because God's authority was always exercised through his voice. God's authority in, in creating the galaxy. We know it. You hear me say it. We sing about it. He spoke these things into existence, right? His voice, whatever he says, goes, period. In the whole creation narrative, nothing is rebelling against him. There, there's no part of creation that's like, oh, I don't want to get up. Don't make the sunrise so early. There's nothing like that. There's no, there's no like land that's like, I don't want to be separated from the water. There's no rebellion. There's no antagonism. Why? Because the voice of God is authoritative. So when he's looking for a way to exemplify or when he's looking for a uh, a representative on the earth. All he needs is a mouthpiece. You see, these, uh, these prophets, and in fact, we see Eli had a weight issue. These guys were not like David's mighty men, okay? They're like old and they're like kind of sitting there, like I'm thinking, picture like lazy boy, you know what I'm saying? Like a couple of little Debbies on the stomach, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's a big Diet Coke in the cup holder, like you're doing something with a Diet Coke, like <laughs> killing yourself. We should have an altar call for that after, sir. <laughs> Why? Because they didn't need to be military leaders. They didn't need to go charge the enemy in battle. All they needed to do was hear the Lord. He only needed a mouthpiece. But at this point, this is the turning point for messianic prophecy in, in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with all the prophecies going all the way back, like even the prophetic glimpses, not just the words, but the prophetic glimpses, Something shifts here because at this point, messianic prophecy starts to take on like king type language. It's interesting. Well, what was it until then? Well, there was still a Messiah. There was. But you know what a Messiah was up until this point? A sacrifice. Just a sacrifice. There was no crown, there was no robe, there was no throne, there was no scepter, there was no, and the government will be resting on his shoulders. There was none of that. Every picture God gave us 
of what our Messiah would look like was a sacrifice. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve. How are we going to be saved? Don't worry. I'll make a sacrifice. You follow it up. We see the sacrificial system was people's salvation. It was the priesthood. It was the, it was the coming and, the, and, and it was the, the atonement. It was the blood that was shed. This is, how, this is what led people and this is what saved people. It was never a king. But when God says in verse 22, give them a king, things begin to change. Am I right? Is that verse 22? Okay. I'm like, for some reason my chapter 8 doesn't have a 22. I don't know. Oof, must have been left out here. Is it? There it is. Yeah, right there on the screen. Perfect. I knew it was in here somewhere. God's authority always came in the form of his voice. And they say we want a king. And so now the Lord in his grace and in his mercy, he's going to speak to people in the way, he's going to reveal himself to people in the way that they'll understand. And even though it broke his heart, because here's the deal. The relationship peace with the Lord should be all the governance that we need. I was reading a book a while ago and they were talking about, um, it was uh, Metaxas and he was talking about the origins of the nation and, he, and he, says, he says that America was founded on the principle of self-governance. Now we know that self-governance isn't really self-governance. It's spirit governance. It's the life and the word of the Father directing us, convicting us, leading us in our defenses, disputes, and devotion. And the second that we forsake that, the second that, that's, that, that, we, that we forfeit that, that principle of self-governance is the day that we say, we need a king. Now, again, now we see things start to change. Now we see, uh, you know, these... Uh, these other prophecies. In fact, Jesus right there in the Gospels, John quotes one in his, in his story out of Zechariah 9 when he says, uh, Behold, daughters of Zion, fear not, daughters of Zion. Your Messiah is coming, even the King of Israel. See, he, there, there's kingly, there starts to come kingly pro prophecy. The language shifts and people start to hear this stuff in a way that they'll understand it now. You know why? Because our flesh doesn't understand sacrifice. We need that prophetic glimpse. We need that prophetic insight. And back then we needed a Samuel. Today we have the Holy Spirit. Today, we're, it, this is an entirely different level of catastrophe when the people of God choose a king to lead them. Because we actually have within every single one of us what is required to self-govern. The whole word govern wasn't used for this reason. Because governance means enforcement. 
It means that, that laws aren't just made, but that some part of a government, there, you know, we have the judicial branch and the legislative branch and the executive branch, and we need all these different things to make sure that there's checks and balances and all this other stuff, and it gets really top-heavy if anybody's ever paid a tax in your life. And you understand how, how incredibly out of proportion a government, a man-made government needs to be when we have forfeited the principle of spiritual leadership in our lives. But that's okay. Give him a king. You see, the Messiah, I'm going to say it again, wouldn't have had to come as a king at all, but only a sacrifice. Just a lamb. Because that painted a better picture of heaven than people misunderstanding what enforcement would look like. Enforcement isn't needed if we're all walking according to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have things in the Old Testament that say things like, uh, you know, you ought not, actually I think it's in the New too and some other wording, but uh, uh, we ought as the people of God not have lawsuits drawn up against each other. That might be a word for somebody in here this morning. We ought not have lawsuits drawn up against each other. Why? Because we're invoking a system of governance and enforcement that was never intended by the Father's heart. The Father's heart for governance was sacrifice. 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 So he sends a Messiah, right, in the book of John. We can turn back to John. Otherwise, I'll just stay in the Old Testament until Jesus comes back. I feel like the Old Testament is just less adulterated. I've been doing some homework with the Lord. God, why do I like the Old Testament better? I feel like the New Testament, so much of this scripture has just been so like bizarrely taken out of context. And you know, we need to redeem this. Somebody get back in the word. Like stop taking everybody else's word for it. You know what I'm saying? Like stop reading an Instagram one-liner and thinking that you did your devotions for the day. Get your face back on the floor before the Father. Get your nose back in the Word of God and pray that the Holy Spirit illuminates some life to you. That's another message. Jamal's going to preach that one day when I'm not here. John 15, the king is coming, but he's coming on a donkey. You want a king? Here's your king. Israel, you want a king? Here's your king. You had the kings that ran the military defenses. You had the kings who had all the wisdom, who had all the wealth in the world. You've had the kings that have had all the networking and all the relationships. You've had the kings. And look where you are now. You're struggling persecuted under the tyranny of people who don't even believe in me. Where have those kings gotten you? And saints, I would, I would implore us this morning, where has our choosing, electing to be ruled by a king, where has it paid off? Where has it ever been beneficial to the people of God to forsake their conviction and instead choose to follow, to listen, to adhere to whatever a king has said. 
You want a king? I'll show you a king. Fear not, daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. There's some interesting things about him coming in on a donkey. I mean, you can do a whole message there. Greg Hubbard preached this message uh, in Pennsylvania. Ashley and I were down before this church started leading worship at a church down there. And he, <laughs> that guy, first of all, he's so big. If you know Greg Hubbard, he's like a monster. And uh, he just preached this awesome message. And it just like sits with me every time I get to the triumphal entry. But um, there's some really cool things about this. But I just want to point out a couple of really practical, simple things before I let you go. Number one, a donkey is low. It's low to the ground. Like, you think a king's going to ride in on a horse, a white horse, you know, something where, like, you know, Clydesdale size, like, dude's, like, up here. You're just, like, looking at his shin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, king. And here he comes on a donkey. You sit on a donkey and you're about eye level, unless you're Portuguese. <laughs> then you're at somebody else's eye level. A donkey is low. Here's another thing a donkey is slow. Jesus comes low and he comes slow. And anybody that has ever waited on the Lord to do something, you know just how slow he comes. Like molasses in December. And, and it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's, so, it's so slow. And I'm like, if, you sit, if you're in town, now if you've been to a parade, if you, has anybody been to the Bristol, like the parade and this sort of thing? And there's like a cadence, there's like a, you know, a pace that this thing goes. You watch the Macy's Day and they stand, they turn around, they do the and they're doing dances and somersaults and all this other stuff. But they're moving along. A donkey kind of seems like it's kind of wandering a little bit, you know? Just kind of like, mm, I don't know if I want to take another step. <laughs> Not today, Satan. <laughs> Uh-uh, I did my work. Tie me back up to that post. <laughs> That's a donkey. That's what Jesus rode in on. Slow and low. And our king, this is what I love right here. If you're writing things down, you just need another rhyming word. He shows up in the afterglow. He rides low and he rides slow. But he rides in on the afterglow. And what this is, if you read this whole context, Lazarus had been raised. And there had been this explosion of excitement. This community came out. You remember what happens. And, 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 uh, and Ron preached on it. And he gets the whole neighborhood involved. And he says, help him take off his grave clothes. And all of his friends and his neighbors are coming around. They're unwrapping him like a mummy, you know, and he's getting dizzy. He's like, whoa. I don't know if that's not in there, but I'm just assuming. <laughs> and so they're taking off his bandage and all this stuff. And like here, you know, the, everything smells like death. And then it starts to fall off of him. And he leaves his grave clothes behind. Somebody should write a song about that. And then, and he comes out and it's like, oh. But that's not when the king shows up. You see, Jesus is there, but he's not demonstrating kingship yet. He demonstrates kingship when the prophecy is fulfilled 
and the prophecy is fulfilled when he comes in on a donkey. What prophecy? You don't have to turn here, but if you're hardcore, you can. It's Zechariah 9. If you have what it takes, go to another scripture this late in the game. Zechariah chapter 9. This is what he's quoting. And by the way, this is a prophecy. This whole nine is a prophecy about God's judgment um, against the neighboring nations, the prophecies against the neighboring nations. And after going through what he's going to do, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I'll remove their blood from their mouths, and I'll detestable things between their teeth, and then also the remnant. and, And then he gets down here and he says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Slow. He's coming. Low. He's coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Right there in that chapter that Jesus breathes out in John 12. Right there in Zechariah 9, we see the restoration of a leader who would determine defense against all other nations disputes he says your king is coming to you and he's just and we see devotion he goes on he jumps down and 11 says as for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you he's drawing them out of the 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 farthest concentric circle of the everybody's worried about what's going on everywhere else in the world Everybody's worried about the the wars and rumors of wars and what's happening in these other nations and all this and that. He says, I've got that covered. Well, now let's get on to the war that's happening in here. Well, I've got that covered too. And unlike the the perverse justice that you're used to, unlike the man-made constructs and the bribes that have been taken and all the corruption and all your forms of governance, I am just and I'm coming to judge these disputes too, the ones in here. But when I can peel back those layers, there's something else, something left, the blood of my covenant. The target of your devotion. Let's stand together in this room. You see what, what Jesus taught us what Jesus taught us about kingship. Oh, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. Father says, you're going to get a king, but you're going to get one my way. Jesus came as a sacrifice, and he left as a king. He came as a sacrifice to this world, but he left as a king. See, Satan's got us all mixed up. We're scrambling, we're clawing, we're doing everything we can to make sure that we're living out our kingship now. We're going to decide 
We're going to determine our defense. We're going to judge our own disputes. We're going to be judge, jury, and executioner of all the stuff in our own lives. But the problem is when you come as a king, you end up a sacrifice. And if you look at the world around us, us appointing our own leaders hasn't really done us any favors. I hate to say it because I'm an American, but us appointing our leaders, guys, see, that's the problem. That's the third level of the generational spiritual leadership that we were talking about. Once we forfeit and take on a king, and Samuel lays it out perfectly, a leader that is chosen by the people, those leaders will be lovers of themselves. And they will lead a government that defends itself against the very people it exists to protect. Stop looking out there. That's the church. The institution of the church. Trying to come as a king, but it's going to end up a sacrifice. When if we would just come as that sacrifice, the Lord will bring us to that throne. To that place where we rule and reign with him. Saints, let's get back to our convictions. Let's get back to our convictions. Let's get back to that humble place, that slow place. I'm preaching to myself right now. You know I am, Jamal. I don't do anything slow. And if I do, I'm not speaking well of it. <laughs> you know low is fine. Like, we'll pick and choose, right? But when we say Jesus comes in the afterglow, that king thing didn't show up in the miracle. In fact, Jesus kind of stood back from that a little bit. If you get into the story, he's like, Lazarus, come forth. Okay. Now you guys help him out. Sacrificing. The king of heaven shows up in the afterglow. He's the light when the light is gone. He's the light that makes even the darkness look like daytime. When we're in our seasons of night and we don't think we can have hope until some other sun arises, you have for forfeited self-governance because self-governance says no. He is the sun in my horizon. I wait upon the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word I place my hope. I wait on the Lord more than they that Watch for the morning. Because the morning will come like clockwork. But we don't live by these clocks. We live by one whose light illuminates our lives no matter what season we're in. That's what we're called to. And that is the power that is within us as the sons and daughters of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even, God, in our rebellion and stubbornness, Lord, that, Father, we'll turn a, a deaf ear and a blind eye to the prophetic leadership that you've offered us. And, and, and Lord, we'll, we'll choose a king for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would restore 
to us, God, the sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, that we would operate on conviction, that we would, that we would forfeit all of our Whatever, whatever this world's taught us about ethics and moral compasses and, and doing good and charitable this and blah, 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 that. God, I pray that we leave all that in the grave and that what comes out is one who is irrevocably adhered to your voice. Lord, that it's not about enforcement anymore for us. It's about relationship. It's about the blood of a covenant that determines our defenses, our disputes, and our devotion. We love you, King Jesus. We worship you, King Jesus, forsaking all others. (laughs) God, we choose today to serve the one who we have not appointed, but who has appointed us. Who we have not elected. Lord, we would have picked something other than a donkey. But we thank you for that donkey this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have the best day of your lives. We'll see you on Easter. And we need you this week. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you. And have the best day of your life.